The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture reading for today is Psalms 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born here, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. The word of the Lord. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 87 if you haven't done so already. I don't know uh, how many of you like jigsaw puzzles, uh, but not many people do because jigsaw puzzles can be incredibly frustrating for a variety of reasons. You lose one piece, whole thing's ruined, wasted hours of your life. Or perhaps you're partnered with someone putting together a puzzle and they don't pursue the same puzzle process as you do. It's edges first, people. Edges first is the only right way to do this. Or there's the one that annoys me most. And that's accidentally putting together pieces that don't actually go together. Having five children, this happens a lot. Like especially the larger the puzzle is, the larger it is, the more complex it is, the smaller the pieces, the easier it is to think these things attach when they don't. Things look like they're supposed to be connected, like they fit, but they, they don't actually. And connecting them actually ends up distorting the entire picture of the puzzle. This doesn't just happen with puzzles. It happens with theology. It happens with what we think about God, what we think about his word. It happens with Psalm 87. This psalm is about the kingdom of God. That's a theological phrase that you're probably a little familiar with. It was used by a popular guy some of you may have heard of. His name is Jesus. Talked about the kingdom of God just a little bit. And and this theological concept, its contents are rather complex. And as a result, many people try to connect the kingdom of God to things that don't actually go together, like those mismatched puzzle pieces. And it ends up distorting the entire biblical picture of what the kingdom of God is. I wonder What picture comes to your mind when you hear me use the phrase, the kingdom of God? What foundation do you begin to lay when you hear that phrase? You start thinking the kingdom of God is heaven and this future reality. The kingdom of God's here and now and it's a present reality. What, What foundation do you begin to lay? When I use that phrase, I wonder what expectations does that phrase create in your heart? expectations of, oh, the kingdom of God has very little to do with my life right now. It's just something I wait for. Or the kingdom of God has everything to do with my life right now. Maybe it creates expectations of the kingdom of God as something God will bring, or maybe expectations of the kingdom of God as something I'm supposed to work to bring and to build. I wonder 
what expectations it creates in your heart, and I wonder what actions it leads you to take. When you hear and think about the kingdom of God, what actions does it lead you to take? An action of just waiting? That the kingdom is something God is supposed to bring and establish? An action of witnessing the kingdom, something I witness about? An action of working the kingdom, something I'm supposed to establish? When I say the phrase, the kingdom of God, what foundation do you begin to lay? What expectations do you begin to create? And what actions does it lead you to take? What is your picture of the kingdom of God? Shades. Shades, it is vital, vital that we have a biblical picture of the kingdom of God, lest we have an incorrect foundation that creates false expectations that leads us to take unbiblical actions. We need the Bible to put together this theological puzzle for us, and it does. It does. Psalm 87 puts together three puzzle pieces giving us a biblical picture of the kingdom of God. So here's the plan. Let's take each of those three pieces of Psalm 87 one at a time. Then at the end, or actually the middle, let's step back and see how that biblical picture of the kingdom of God, let, let's, let's see the, the foundation that it lays. Let's see the expectations that it creates. Let's see the biblical action it leads us to take. Got the plan. Got it or not, we're going for it. Here we go. Puzzle piece number one. The kingdom of God was foreshadowed in the founding of Zion. The kingdom of God was foreshadowed in the founding of Zion. Look at Psalm 87 verses 1 through 3. On the holy mount stands the city, he, that's God, on the holy mount stands the city God founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. These verses describe the founding of Jerusalem as the city of God. But in order for us to get the full picture of what's really going on here, we need to back up a little bit in our biblical history, actually all the way back up to Genesis 12. If you remember, in Genesis 12, God calls out Abraham. And he makes with Abraham a unilateral covenant. In other words, a one-sided promise. Abraham's not required to do anything. God just says, this is what I will do. He makes this unilateral covenant with Abraham that he is going to bless him. And through him, he's going to bless all the families, all the nations of the world. He's going to do it through Abraham and through his offspring. How? How will God do that? How he will do it is foreshadowed through the covenant he makes with Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel. Exodus 19 and verse 5. This is what God says to Israel. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God says to Israel, if you will keep my covenant. In other words, this is a different kind of covenant than the one God made with Abraham. This is not a unilateral covenant. This covenant comes with conditions. 
blessings and curses for whether or not those conditions are kept or not. This is, this is different than that unilateral covenant. This, this is more like God's covenant with Adam. Where Adam had a covenant that he was to keep, and if he didn't keep it, he would be kicked out, exiled out of Eden. The same penalty was placed upon the Israelites. If they didn't keep their covenant, they would be kicked out, exiled out of the land that God had promised to them. So God says, if Israel will keep his covenant, he will make them a kingdom, a kingdom of priests to serve as a holy nation witness to the world. This is how foreshadowing how through abraham's offspring he will bless all the nations of the world he will make them a kingdom of priests to serve as a holy nation witness to the world this is what psalm 87 1 through 3 celebrates it seems like that promise that plan is coming to pass it's becoming a reality Those first three verses of psalm 87 celebrate when god was making israel into a kingdom with a king and a capital city that contained the temple that would make them a holy witness to the world. Look at verse 1 again. See this unfold. On the holy mount, that's Mount Zion. It's more like a glorified hill, but okay, whatever. In Birmingham, we know something about calling hills mountains. All right, so on Mount Zion, which is called holy because it's where God chose to have the temple built. On the holy mount, stands the city that he founded. On Mount Zion is the city of Jerusalem. And because it's on Mount Zion, it also gets referred to not just as Jerusalem, but as Zion. Uh, We know something about nicknames for cities. We're the Magic City, we're the Iron City, we're all of these different things. Nickname for Jerusalem is Zion because that's the mountain it's located on. We see that in the very next verse. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. That's the city of Jerusalem. He Loves it. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places throughout all the land of Jacob, all the land of Israel. In other words, what's being communicated here is that the Lord showed his favor towards Jerusalem by choosing it as the place his presence would be made known through the temple. He founded Jerusalem as his city. Verse 3 calls it the city of God. Now, when did this happen? Because Jerusalem existed as a city long before the Jews ever even actually showed up. It happened when God installed his king, David, there and made it the capital. When God installed David as the king of Israel, he made Jerusalem its capital. He gave David instructions to prepare all the supplies in order to build his temple on Mount Zion. David's son, King Solomon, eventually would build that temple. You see what's happening, what's unfolding through a king... God founded a kingdom where the world could come to the temple and experience his presence. Is this the kingdom of God? I mean, verse 3 does say, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Glorious things like we read in Psalm 46. It declares all enemies will fail to conquer Zion. Glorious things like we read in Psalm 48. It says Zion will be the joy of all the earth. And these glorious things only get more glorious when we get outside the Psalms and get into the prophets. 
The prophets declare that a king will come from David's line who will reign forever in perfect peace, justice, and righteousness. And all of the nations of the world will stream to Zion in worship of God himself as king. These are the glorious things, the glorious things that never come to pass. Things, everything I just listed never happens because Israel just like Adam, doesn't obey the voice of God. They don't keep his covenant. That's precisely what Hosea 6 and verse 7 says. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. And just like Adam was exiled out of Eden, the people of Israel are exiled out of their land. Even the placement of this psalm, Psalm 87, its placement in book three of the Psalter is meant to highlight this reality. If you remember, we've gone over the different themes that are traced throughout the books of the Psalter. And thematically, book three of the Psalms mourns the downfall of Zion. I mean, by the time you get to its end in Psalm 89, Zion has clearly been conquered by Babylon and forced into exile. Zion hasn't withstood being conquered by its enemies. It has been conquered by its enemies. Zion isn't the joy of all the earth. Psalm 44 says it becomes the joke of all the earth. There is no perfect king from David's line so that there's perfect peace and the nation stream into Zion to worship God. No, the opposite is happening. The people of God are actually being forced out of Zion by the nations to worship their gods in exile. So again, I ask, is the founding of Zion the founding of the kingdom of God? Or is it a foreshadowing of it? You know what foreshadowing is? All right, foreshadowing, uh, it, it's, it's an indication of what's to come. It shows up in movies and stories a lot. Like I'm sure all of you have seen The Empire Strikes Back, the greatest Star Wars movie made yet to date. And you know when Luke goes into the cave and he has this vision of fighting Darth Vader and he graphic content, he cuts off Vader's head. Um, the, the mask explodes and it's Luke's own face inside there. It's foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing that he's got some kind of relation. There's something of himself in Vader. Spoiler alert, like 40 year old spoiler alert. Vader's his father. It was being foreshadowed. Or when you watch The Godfather, one of the greatest movies of all time, every time you see somebody holding an orange or near oranges, it's foreshadowing that they're going to die. Watch the movie, I promise. It's in there. It's foreshadowing. Foreshadowing is like the eerie music in a movie that that starts playing that lets you know something bad is is coming. Foreshadowing is, is like seeing a shadow that lets you know something's casting that. Something is is coming. It's an indicator of what's coming. And that is what the founding of Zion in the Old Testament is. It's an indicator of what's coming. There is a kingdom like Zion coming, but it's a perfect kingdom and Jerusalem is not it. There is a king like David coming, but he's a perfect king and David is not him. All of the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham's offspring, but the nation of Israel is not it. All of this foreshadows the kingdom of God that is to come. Shades, when you think of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, think of it as a foreshadowed kingdom. 
The kingdom of God was foreshadowed in the founding of Zion. But it won't be fulfilled until the future. That's what we see in puzzle piece number two. Number two, the kingdom of God will be fulfilled in the future Zion. So we've dealt with the past. The kingdom of God was foreshadowed in the founding of earthly Zion. Now the future. The kingdom of God will be fulfilled in the future Zion. That gets teased out for us. Look at verse 4. God himself now speaks in this psalm. He says, Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon, hold Philistia and Tyre and Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, I, I, I like the Greek version of the Old Testament right here, it says, and of Mother Zion. Of Mother Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. See why it calls her Mother Zion? These people were born in her. For the Most High Himself will, will, that's future, the Most High Himself will establish her, will establish Zion. What in the world is going on in this psalm? It just celebrated when Zion was established, and now it looks forward to when God will establish Zion. He will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples, this one was born there. So verse 5 proclaims to us that the day will come in the future when God himself will establish, found Zion, a future Zion. We've already celebrated the present earthly Zion. This is talking about a future Zion, which the founding of the past Zion foreshadowed. This, this Zion, this is a kingdom to come. And everything glorious ever said about Zion will come to pass with this kingdom. We see that right here in the words of God himself in verse 4. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab. That's Egypt. It's a nickname for Egypt. I mention Egypt and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. This is a list of enemies who opposed and oppressed and tried to conquer God's people. But God says that the day will come when he will conquer those enemies by conquering their hearts. See, he says they will be among those who know him. They'll know me. That, that's language for believe in him. Come to faith in him. Become citizens of his kingdom. In other words, the day will come when God will establish a future kingdom, a future sign, in which it really will be the joy of all nations. And when he says all nations, he means all. Let me just mention the ones you least expect to be there, God says. Zion will be the joy of all the nations. How? How's that going to happen? Look again, verses 5 and 6. And of Mother Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. These nations I just talked about, this one that one, were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people. There's a picture of a census that the Lord is taking and scribing who is a citizen of this kingdom. The Lord records as he registers the people. This one, Egypt, Babylon, the Philistines, this one was born in her. In other words, 
The Most High Himself, the Lord, will make people from every kingdom citizens of His kingdom. He will do something. He will do something that will make them not just citizens, like naturalized citizens. He will do something that will make them natural-born citizens. You see that? They will be citizens as if this one was born in Zion. The Zion to come. In other words, God is saying, listen, these people, they may have been physically born in Egypt or Babylon or Philistia or America or China or Uganda. Pick your country. They may have been born as citizens of any of those kingdoms, but he will do something to cause them to be born again as citizens of his kingdom. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God the Father has done something. He so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus, to die the death that every enemy of God deserved to die so that he might give us new life which Jesus himself describes in John chapter 3 as being born again. Shades, Ephesians 2 says that we are all natural-born citizens of the kingdom of this world and thus natural-born enemies of God. We deserve to be on this list in Psalm 87. But by his grace, we are born again as citizens of his kingdom. And one day, that kingdom will be consummated. That's what's being talked about right here in Psalm 87. One day, King Jesus will come, and Revelation 21 pictures his kingdom of new creation as a city, a city it calls New Jerusalem, New Zion. It's, it's a picture. We talked about this when we went through the book of Revelation. That city, it's, not, it's not a literal city. It's a picture. It's a symbol of new creation, of his kingdom to come. People from every tribe and nation and tongue will stream into it to worship God who has made all things new. That is the kingdom that the first Zion was pointing to. Jesus is the king who David was pointing to. He's the lamb of God, fully and finally present with his people. That's what the temple was pointing to. That's why Revelation 21 and verse 22 tells us that in the new creation, in the new city of Zion, there will be no temple building, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. What the temple was pointing towards will be fulfilled. David was pointing towards will be fulfilled. What Zion was pointing towards will be fulfilled. Everything foreshadowed will be fulfilled. The kingdom of God will be fulfilled in future Zion. But order to get an accurate picture of what the bible means when it talks about the kingdom of god you're like okay jonathan said it wasn't the kingdom of israel this was foreshadowing a kingdom that's to come it's this future kingdom of christ that's going to come new creation that's the kingdom of god it's not the whole picture yet there's one more puzzle piece that we need puzzle piece number three the kingdom of god is foretasted by the citizens of zion the kingdom of god is So we've talked about the past. It was foreshadowed in the founding of old earthly Zion. Talked about the future. It will be fulfilled in the future coming kingdom of Zion. Now we talk about the present. The kingdom of God is 
foretasted by the citizens of Zion. Verse 7. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are present tense. Right now. All my springs are in you. Singers and dancers. In other words, worshipers. True believers, worshipers of God. They say, all my fountains are in you. All my fountains, my source of life. My true life. All of it. Not part of it. Not some. All of everything that is true life. Right now, I find it in you. It's in God because he has caused me to be born again. Already. Already he has given me new life. All the fountains of eternal life he has poured out within my soul. Already he has given me new life. I am already a citizen of his kingdom, even if that kingdom is not yet fully here. Not yet have all wrongs been righted. Not yet is there perfect peace. Not yet has death been reversed in resurrection. Not yet has the kingdom age come fully. But what we're seeing is that it has broken into the present age through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Resurrection belongs to the kingdom age to come. But through the resurrection of Jesus... That age has broken into the present and already I can say I experience kingdom life. I experience being a citizen of that kingdom that's not yet fully here already. I am experiencing it. I'm foretasting it. We live in the overlap of the ages. The present age and the age to come. They overlap. The Jews did not expect this was why, and that's why they had a very hard time recognizing Christ. The Jews expected this present age, to cataclysmically end and give way to the established kingdom of God and his rule and reign of perfect peace and justice forever. But in the fullness of time, God sent his son to inaugurate the kingdom that was to come through his death and resurrection. And one day he will come again to bring that inaugurated kingdom to consummation. We live in the overlap of the ages, the already not yet. Not yet has the kingdom come in full, but already we foretaste it. Jesus himself talked about the kingdom this way. When Jesus came, he came declaring the kingdom of God as an already reality that he was showing up to inaugurate. I'll just give you one example. Matthew 12 and verse 28. Jesus says, if by the spirit of God I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here, now, in me. I'm inaugurating, I'm the king, I'm showing up. I'm inaugurating the kingdom. But yet Jesus also spoke about the kingdom of God as a coming reality, not yet fully fulfilled. I'll give you one example. Luke 22 and verse 18. I tell you that from now on, he's talking to his disciples at the Last Supper. I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. It's not yet fully here. And yet in some sense, we already for taste it because all who trust in jesus become citizens of that kingdom now that's what paul declares in philippians our citizenship is in heaven from which we await king jesus you're already a citizen of that kingdom the holy spirit already fills you with eternal resurrection life now you already foretaste the kingdom even though it is not yet fully here and now now the full puzzle picture of the kingdom of God begins to come into focus for us. 
It's a kingdom foreshadowed, a kingdom not yet fulfilled, but a kingdom already foretasted. This is what Scripture means when it talks about the kingdom of God. A kingdom foreshadowed, not yet fully fulfilled, but already foretasted. I want to try to bring that picture into very sharp relief for you. This is very practical. It shapes your entire outlook on the Christian life. I want to bring this into sharp relief for you. And I think the easiest way to bring this picture of the kingdom into sharp relief is to step back. I told you we were going to do this. Step back and see the foundation this picture lays, the expectations it creates, and the actions that it leads us to take. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time on. And each of these things, they connect with the puzzle pieces that we've already walked through. So in other words, it, it's the fact that the kingdom is a foreshadowed kingdom that leads us to know what foundation it lays. It's the fact that it is a not yet fulfilled kingdom that leads us to have proper biblical expectations. It's the fact that we already foretaste it that leads us to take biblical action. Let's walk through that and bring this picture of the kingdom to sharp relief. So first, let's see the foundation this picture of the kingdom lays. Can't do any better than the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. No one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. This picture of the kingdom, the foundation it lays, is the foundation of the kingdom of Christ. That's that's what all of the foreshadowing was leading us to, right? All of the foreshadowing was leading us, bringing us to Christ. It guards us from making anything else the foundation of the kingdom of God. The foundation, according to the biblical picture of the kingdom of God, the foundation is Christ and Christ alone. And you're only a citizen of the kingdom if you're connected to Christ. God's kingdom is not founded on any country. It is founded on Christ. I I say that specifically to push back against two common misunderstandings in our context. And by our context, I mean the church in the United States of America. There's two common misunderstandings that try to connect. Think about those puzzle pieces again. Two common misunderstandings that try to connect the kingdom of God with a country instead of with Christ. One of those misconceptions tries to connect the kingdom of God with the country of Israel. Modern day country of Israel. Uh, Because God swore to Abraham and to his offspring, those who bless you I will bless and those who curse you I will curse. There are many who believe that blessing and cursing from God depends upon the way that we relate to modern-day Israel. A couple disclaimers here, people. I'm not anti-Semitic in the least. I am not trying to tell you what your politics about Israel and Palestine should be or any of that. All I'm trying to tell you is that you do not have a divine mandate from God as to what those politics should be. Whether or not God blesses any nation is not dependent upon that nation's stance towards Israel. Because Israel is not the kingdom of God. Israel foreshadowed Christ. 
Christ who fulfilled their role. Jesus is the true Israelite. People are not a part of the kingdom of God by being connected to Israel or to any country. They're a part of the kingdom of God by being connected to Christ. Paul makes that point rather bluntly in Galatians. Galatians 3 and verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul's arguing over a singular or a plural right here. And he's saying that God intentionally, by the Spirit, made that promise to Abraham's offspring singular on purpose because it was a promise that was going to come to fulfillment, not in the nation of Israel, but in Christ. Verse 29 of Galatians 3 goes on to say, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you're connected to Christ, the true Israelite, you are a part of the true Israel. You're Abraham's offspring. This is why I was able to grow up singing Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. And then we did some crazy stuff with our arms and legs and spinning around and stuff. If you don't know, count yourself blessed. That's why I could, could say that, because being a part of the kingdom of God doesn't depend upon being connected to any country, even the country of Israel. It depends upon being connected to the true Israelite who is Christ. And it's Christ who has caused me to be born again as a citizen of the true Jerusalem, not the earthly city in the Middle East, but the heavenly city that Paul in Galatians 4.26 calls our mother. The Jerusalem above is free and she is your mother. You were born in her. He's referencing the Greek version of Psalm 87. I can call Abraham my father and Jerusalem my mother because all who are connected to Christ are a part of the true Israel, the church. Jew and Gentile alike. God has one people and one way of salvation. Just in case there's any doubt, 1 Peter 2.9, the Apostle Peter looks at the multi-ethnic church from every nation. And he calls them this, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You should recognize those words. We read them back in Exodus chapter 19. That is what God called Israel to be. And Peter now applies those words to the church, to all those connected to Christ. He says, you are God's people, true Israel. You are God's holy nation. He's only got one. And it's the church. There is no such thing according to the bible there is no such thing as a christian nation other than the church of christ doesn't exist that should have been made clear to us in revelation revelation constantly gave us a picture of only two kingdoms the kingdom of god and the kingdom of this world that it called babylon every country in this world belongs on one side of that equation. There is no third category. God has one holy people, one holy nation. His multi-ethnic people across the globe, Jew and Gentile alike, the church. The kingdom of God is not founded on a country. It's founded on 
Christ. So whether or not you are blessed or cursed of God doesn't depend upon how you relate to any particular country. It depends on how you relate to Christ, how you relate to his church. That's what Jesus himself says in Matthew 25. Whatever you've done unto the least of these, my brothers, my church, you've done it unto me. How you relate unto the church is how you relate unto me. The kingdom of God's not founded on a country, it's founded on Christ. Therefore, the citizens of the kingdom are those who are connected to Christ. Still, I told you there were two misconceptions. I've only been over one. There is a second country that people in our context try to connect. There's puzzle pieces again. Try to improperly connect with the kingdom of God. And that is our own country. The United States of America. This, this is actually the exact same mistake people make with Israel. They just treat America as if it's the new and true Israel. This is what I referred to a couple of weeks ago as the heresy of Christian nationalism. I want to get real explicit. If I'm going to call something a heresy, I don't use that word lightly. I want you to know what I'm talking about, okay? This is the belief that America has a special covenant relationship with God, like the Old Testament people of Israel. Please hear me, Shades. I mean, everything I'm saying right here, I'm not talking about patriotism. I'm talking about Christian nationalism. Theologian Michael Horton, I think, defines the difference rather helpfully. He says, patriotism is America is special to me. Christian nationalism is America is special to God. God has one special people. It's the idea that God has chosen America out of all the other countries of the world to have a special covenant relationship with him so that he can use it as a redeemer nation like he used Israel. That makes the mistake. Do you see the mistake that's being made theologically when what we have seen about the foreshadowing of the kingdom? It makes the mistake of seeing America as the fulfillment of Israel instead of seeing Christ as the fulfillment of Israel. You can see this happen because people will do things like they'll pick up the promises that were made to Israel out in the Old Testament, and they will apply them as if they are about America. The one I heard the most growing up was Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them and I will heal their land. It's got nothing to do with the United States of America, Shades. It was a promise made to Israel who was existing under the Old Testament covenant with its blessings and curses. And if they would turn from their sin and repent and return to keeping covenant, God would bless them. America is not in that kind of relationship with God. No country is. Christian nationalism makes the mistake of seeing America as the fulfillment of Israel instead of Christ as the fulfillment of Israel. It misses Christ and puts America in its place as the Savior of the world. That's why it's a heresy. It's about a different Savior. It misses Christ and it misses the church who are alone Christ's people. It substitutes in America. In other words... It conflates the kingdom of God with our country. Jesus himself rejected such a notion in his words to Pilate in John 18 and verse 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Christ says, my kingdom's not connected with a country. If it were, my, sir, my followers, they would be here literally using violence and force to take control of that country in my name. Lord, have mercy. This is what happens. This is why this is so vital. This is what happens when people equate the kingdom of God with the country. They take up swords in the Savior's name. Just ask the Holy Roman Empire. You saw itself as the kingdom of God and its responsibility to expand and claim land in the name of that kingdom. We call these the Crusades, where soldiers literally marched forth underneath the banner of chanting and saying, Christ is Lord, as they cleaved in head, as they cleaved into the heads of infidels. Jesus commands his followers not to take up swords, but to put away their swords and to take up their cross. Because his kingdom is not of this world. You can't bear witness to it with the weapons of this world. Or through the greatness of a country, you can only bear witness to it through the foolishness of the cross. What did we see over and over again throughout Revelation? That we are a people who conquer our enemies not by killing them, but by dying for them. By being conquered by them, we conquer. These are those who have conquered, who have held fast to the word of the Lamb and His testimony and have not loved their lives even unto death. Shades, the kingdom of God is not founded on a country. It was foreshadowed by one, but fulfilled and founded on Christ alone. Do you see the biblical picture of the kingdom of God coming into sharper relief? It's a kingdom foreshadowed so that we may clearly see it's founded on Christ alone. The kingdom of God, it is the kingdom of Christ. But there's more. There's more to the biblical picture of the kingdom of God. We said that it's a kingdom foreshadowed, but we went further than that. We said it is also a kingdom not yet fulfilled. And that picture is brought into sharp relief by standing back, not just to see the foundation it lays, but to see the expectations it creates. The fact that it's a kingdom not yet fulfilled, what kind of expectation should that create in us as Christians? This is the second thing we need to see, the expectations this picture of the kingdom creates. Not yet fulfilled, won't be until King Jesus returns. It's only at the end of Revelation that we finally see the kingdom fulfilled in new creation. Christ comes, brings redemption to completion, rights all wrongs, banishes sin and death. The biblical picture of the kingdom is one that is not yet fulfilled and won't be until Jesus returns. That picture should create certain expectations in us. Expectations about whether or not we should expect tribulation or peace in this world. Peace is what characterizes the kingdom to come. Jesus told us in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. Yes, we will have peace in him. But we'll experience tribulation because this kingdom is not yet fulfilled. It creates expectations about how much righteousness we should expect to see in this world. I, I am consistently dumbfounded at Christians who are shocked and surprised at unrighteousness. Jesus says in John 3, 19, the light has come into the world. 
mankind loved the darkness and hated the light. It should create expectations in us about how much justice we think we are going to be able to achieve. Mark 14 and verse 7, Jesus said, you'll always have the poor with you. My kingdom will come. It will put poverty to an end. But until that day, poverty and all sorts of injustices will continue. See, here's what I'm getting at, Shades. Many Christians make the mistake of connecting, think puzzle pieces again, they make the mistake of connecting the kingdom of God with something we have the power and responsibility to bring. They speak of building the kingdom or bringing the kingdom by spreading peace, righteousness, justice, all of which are good things we should seek, but not with the expectation that we are bringing or building the kingdom. That will lead to burnout. You will become frustrated and jaded when you feel like you fail to change the world. I watch it happen to college student after college student after college student. And their faith just flounders because they didn't have a biblical picture of the kingdom of God. So they didn't have biblical expectations. And you either end up feeling guilty like you failed God or you end up feeling disillusioned like God has failed you. Our expectation should not be to bring or build the kingdom. That's what Christ alone will do. He said so in Matthew 18. I will build my church. We'll bring it at the close of the age. This is what Christ alone will do when he comes. Shades, do you see the biblical picture of the kingdom coming into sharper relief? It is the kingdom of Christ, but it is the not yet kingdom of Christ. We need to see that so that we may clearly see what our expectations should and shouldn't be. This is the not yet kingdom of Christ. So what does that mean? Does it mean we do nothing? Our uh, world's just going to hell in a handbasket. That's what Jonathan said today. Let's just wait until Jesus comes to bring the kingdom. No, there is more to the biblical picture of the kingdom. Remember, there's one more puzzle piece. For while this is a kingdom not yet fulfilled, it is simultaneously a kingdom already foretasted. And that picture is brought into sharp relief through the actions that leads us to take. So the third, final thing we need to see, the actions this picture of the kingdom leads us to take. Look at the last verse of Psalm 87 one more time. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are, right here in the present, all my springs are in you. This is the action the kingdom leads us to take. Worship that bears witness these are worshipers dancers singers and they've got something to say they have a witness to bear all my fountains true life is found in god in the king of the kingdom and in him alone we declare to the world what we already foretaste. All my fountains, my true life is in God right now. I have eternal kingdom life in Christ. We bear witness to what we have foretasted, inviting others to foretaste it too. We, the church, are an outpost of the coming kingdom. We're, we're on enemy ground here, people. 
We are exiles and we are strangers in this world. And we are an outpost of a kingdom that's coming. We're, we're like an embassy of the age that is to come. Perhaps that's why 2 Corinthians calls us ambassadors. The church is like an embassy and we are ambassadors who bear witness about the kingdom to which we belong. And we bear witness through word and deed, through declaration and demonstration. We declare all my fountains are in you and we demonstrate what the kingdom is like. We sing and dance. This is why I said, of course, we seek peace and righteousness and justice. Because, not because we think that through those things we're going to bring the kingdom, but through those things we are going to bear witness to the kingdom. We, we fight poverty to bear witness to a kingdom that's coming where poverty will end. We fight racism to bear witness to the kingdom that's coming that crushes racism. That's what Psalm 87 does. It puts a dagger in the heart of racism. It takes the nations that the Jews would have been most prejudiced against and says, brothers and sisters, they are to you. We bear witness, we, we, we pursue justice and peace and righteousness with the goal of faithfully bearing witness. And that guards us from frustration and burning out. Because faithfully bearing witness, that's a goal we can complete. That's a goal we're called to complete. It's a goal we are empowered to complete. Our goal is not to build or bring the kingdom, but to bear witness to it. Even if that costs us our lives, we lovingly lay them down to bear witness to a Savior who lovingly laid His life down. We bear witness to His cross by taking up our own. We bear witness to the already, not yet, kingdom of Christ. That's the biblical picture of the kingdom of God. It is the already, not yet, kingdom of Christ. Do you see it, Chase? Do, do you believe it? Do you bear witness to it, Chase? My prayer is that we will be faithful, faithful citizens of the kingdom of God, the already, not yet, kingdom of Christ.